This episode of the Best Seats Podcast is brought to you by, well, you. To learn how you can support the show, go to thebestseats.com slash Patreon. Once there, you'll learn how you can get early access to shows, ad-free listening, the ability to submit questions, comments, concerns, and more. Once again, that's thebestseats.com slash Patreon. But enough of that. On to the show. What's up, everybody? Hello and welcome to the first ever episode 53 of the Best Seats Podcast, the only podcast bringing you interviews with some of the most talented people in and around the hospitality community from right here in Orange County to the rest of Southern California and beyond each and every episode. I'm your host, Crawford McCarthy, founder of The Best Seats. Thank you, as always, to my friend Allie Coyle, who provides the music for the show. You can find more of her work at AllieCoyleMusic.com. She just launched her EP, depending on when you are listening to this episode. Pre-orders are up now for vinyl and so forth, so please go check it out. She's a very, very talented musician. I'm proud to call her a friend and even more proud and humbled that she provides the music for this pokey little podcast. And as a reminder, if you do enjoy this show, please be sure to leave a rating and or a review wherever you're listening to it. It helps other folks discover it. Go to thebestseats.com for more. And do not forget, last but not least, you can get early ad-free listening to each and every episode as well as early ad-free access to all of the other content created by The Best Seats by going to patreon.com slash thebestseats and signing up at a monthly amount that means the most to you. I am so excited for episode 53. Um, I'm deeply fascinated by restaurants as a whole, obviously. But I'm very fascinated by fast casuals. Now, fast casuals are something that came on the market very, very hot several years ago. Obviously, the biggest one that everybody thinks about is Chipotle. They've kind of been the model and the foundation for so many others. There's a lot of imitators. Um, There's a lot of people that kind of come on quick. They fade away quickly. But there's ones that come on and they find success. And 2020 changed a lot of things in the hospitality industry, especially on the business side of things. But how did it affect fast casual? Well, I am very, very, very humbled to sit down today with the COO of Orange County's own Pita Pita, Ramiel Gindi. Now, it's a fascinating thing to try to think about these from a business perspective. Obviously, it's a completely different animal. Um, It's a totally fascinating animal. I'm incredibly humbled to take this time to sit down and, and really learn about the business side of things, but not just the business on how they've adapted, what 2020 changed for them, and so forth. So I don't want to take up too much more time. This is a long one. It's a very interesting one and a fascinating one. I hope that you will enjoy it. So let's jump right in to episode 53 of the Best Seeds podcast featuring COO of Pita Pita, Ramiel Gindi. Enjoy. Remy, thank you so much for taking the time. Um, I should say right off the bat that unfortunately we could not be joined by Peter Peter's founder, who unfortunately had a personal emergency that he had to deal with, and we are hoping that that goes very smoothly. But regardless, I am extremely happy to sit down today. I've been looking forward to this podcast episode for a while, um, mainly because strictly, if not just from how things have been going, as we're going to talk about the hospitality industry as a whole lately. This is an industry and I think a business aspect that I don't think a lot of people understand. I find it very fascinating and I'm very much looking forward to picking your brain and kind of learning more about what P2P is all about and, and how operations have been for you guys as a group. But before we jump in any further, um, I want to make sure that I give a good amount of due diligence. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving a little bit of your background? Absolutely. Uh, well, thank you for having us um, on your podcast. Um, so my name is Rami Elgindi. I'm the uh, CEO head of operations for Pita Pita. Um, been in this industry since I was 18 years old. Uh, first job was at the Olive Garden, back when it was extremely popular, and there used to be an hour and a half wait to get into an Olive Garden, but um, went to school for hotel and restaurant management at uh, Cal Poly Pomona. Have owned my own restaurant, and but about 10 years ago, I decided that uh, I wanted to transition into fast casual. Uh, I kind of saw 
or I had an inclination that the old style of, of course, there's always going to be uh, full dining, but I think for most of us in our in our habits and how we eat, um, you know, I, I had a strong inclination that fast casual was where the growth potential is uh, and fast casual sector uh, is able to grow much faster and scale up much faster than, uh, let's say, Houston's or, uh, you know, one of your more traditional sit-down restaurants mm-hmm. just because of infrastructure cost and and staffing and all that um so, so i decided uh, but i knew nothing about the fast casual world because i've always been in full dining and uh so i decided uh by random uh one of my really good friends uh was the head of marketing for chipotle he said hey if you want to f- learn fast casual the best way is it's pretty chipotle good it's yeah, a pretty good place to yeah. do it yeah so um so started there, and it was it was brutal. It was a totally different world. Um, you know, Chipotle was probably the greatest fast casual university that somebody can go to yeah. um, to learn this. The efficiencies, the the systems, really drilled that. Uh, that's one of the things that Chipotle did really well. And at the time, of course, it was bigger than life. Um, and then. Uh, and then after that, uh, I got recruited to Mendocino Farms, which is uh, a local LA little sandwich shop, sandwich and salads, mm-hmm. uh, but it was done in a way that nobody else had approached that sector. And uh, that's probably where the love for for true hospitality and true uh, care for execution really sprung in me. I was I was fortunate enough to be around the you know the founders uh, because we were we we're small back then six restaurants and to have that to work with such visionaries so close uh the chipotle experience was very corporate uh, detached from the source mm-hmm. and uh mendocino farms was one of those that was very close to the source and uh was able to soak up a lot uh and really going forward that probably shaped my approach to uh, to food and hospitality more than anything else I've ever done in my life. So after that, I went and uh, helped another concept. Uh, it was a pokey concept when pokey was hot to go from one to five restaurants. Uh, and then um, got recruited to uh, another startup group that had one restaurant. Uh, it, was a, it was a Nashville uh, hot chicken concept, and um, which is now blowing up massively yeah you want to talk about a craze that's i mean that one went just yeah i mean this is probably one of the it's going to be one of the fastest growing franchises ever and that was a franchise model which was different uh very very different the approach is a little bit different than um you know anything that's that's corporate or vertically integrated uh concepts where the founder and has the most control it kind of in a franchise setting it's a little the challenges are different because Mm -hmm. you're dealing with you know, hundred owners as opposed to one. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, then Corona happened. And so, uh, at that point, um, once again, by, by sheer accident, uh, I was approached to come and check out this little company called Pita Pita that, um, had, has three restaurants. This is the middle of COVID was hoping to expand, but they needed, they really needed help with infrastructure and operations and systems and really understanding a lot of the fundamentals that I think uh, from an, an operator's perspective, I think most mom and pop, actually even bigger size groups, they struggle with or, uh, or they don't have the right people to be able to implement the fundamentals to give every chance. There's never a, um, a guaranteed uh, success path in the restaurant business, but there's a, there's a best effort to try and put all the right pieces together. I remember the first time I came to Pita Pita to meet with, uh, so my buddy who was heading, doing consulting marketing for Pita Pita, and then the founder, Haitham. And I remember sitting down and, and just for people to know, my background is I'm half Egyptian, half Greek. So this is, I never thought I would work in a Mediterranean concept. I just never sought it, but I, I'm extremely familiar with this food. Yeah. Uh, grew up eating it and and also getting exposed to to different accents to the food because in the Middle East 
the same, a kebab is not a kebab in every country. Exactly. They're, everybody has their own twist, right? And the spices that people use are a little bit different. So, um, and I remember sitting down and eating the food here and I was, I was impressed. I was, and I've had a lot of uh, Middle Eastern food and, and I was impressed. I was actually surprised because in fast casual, I had never tasted something that good more in probably, uh, you know, uh, full service Mediterranean, I've had some excellent meals in some great restaurants, uh, but in fast casual, it's never happened to me before. Yeah. And so, so I sat there and I'm like, okay, there is, this is where you start. People seek you out because they hear about your food. And if the food here is, I would say it was mostly amazing and impression and, and left an impression on me. I'm like, okay, there's something here. Um, so I started on a consulting basis with, um, with Hytham. He had had many, uh, many consultants come in uh, over the years and, and kind of give, I think that happens when founders, uh, mom and pop restaurant owners, they get to a certain point, they decide, okay, if they're not really bred in the business, even if you are, it's always really good to not, I, I call it, be careful not to fall in love with your own ideas and always get somebody to challenge your ideas. And so there were multiple consultants that had come in, but there's a huge gap between here's what you should do in implementation. So mm -hmm. you can have a great idea. And we always ask, what, is, it, is it a great idea? Or so when something doesn't work, is it a bad idea or is it bad implementation? So in any case, uh, here we are uh, started implementing since my background is from really worked in the restaurants from the ground up, from kitchen to prep to every piece of it. So implementation is, is something that I'm extremely familiar with to take these great ideas that founders come up with refine them and be able to put systems to be able to execute. Cause if you can't ex execute those great ideas, um, yeah. you don't have anything, right? Um, so. Obviously kind of, as I, I said in the open, Haitham uh, unfortunately could not be here today. He had a personal commitment, but you're very familiar with his story. And yep. I wanna make sure that we give credit where it's due before we kind of dive into Absolutely. the rest of the business and logistics. Can you kind of talk us through, or at least I guess summarize in your own words, how P2P came to be kind of from his perspective, kind of from birth to where we are now? Absolutely. So, so obviously, Haitham was, uh, he was born in uh, Palestine, and then um, family migrated to Jordan, grew up in Jordan, you know, many uh, in that area of the world, a lot of people send their, their kids to come and get education in the US. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, sure enough, his his background was in finance. Uh, that was pretty much his career. A few years ago, about 11 years ago, he obviously growing up in that culture where we're very food centered. Yeah. Right. And, and our meals mean, I, I mean, I remember growing up, my, my grandma would make a list at nine in the morning as far as planned out the meal for the day. And then went shopping to the market, you know, for, to pick the tomatoes and to pick, make everything from scratch, basically organic, right. What we call organic today was just yeah. the only, the that only was option what it was. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so, so food is, is an event, right? Until everything comes together for the meal where the whole family gets together. This, was, this is a ritual. You know, it's still today the same idea. It's just a, it's, it's a very special time. And for Haitham, uh, when he came here, you know, came straight and when he migrated here straight to Orange County, kind of missed that, that feeling of that, that meal, all these different components with multiple proteins and multiple starches and salads and just for one meal. And this is an everyday occurrence. Mm -hmm. He wanted that. And the best way, and he wanted to bring that to the, to the people. He wanted to share that experience with the people. And also felt that he grew up like most of us with our mom's recipes and our mom's cooking some, some phenomenal food. He just felt like there was space for it. People didn't know about it. And the few concepts that were providing some kind of a Mediterranean, Greek, uh, a little bit of Middle Eastern, nobody was really, nobody had hit the market in a way where it captured some kind of mass following, like let's say Mexican food did, mm -hmm. or, you know, like Chipotle did with, with a more westernized version of Mexican food that appealed to almost everybody. Yeah. So first he felt the need for to share the food. And second, he looked at, of course, what everybody looked at 10 years ago, Chipotle, and yep. felt like, hey, this would make perfect sense to have 
all these different ingredients in Middle Eastern food uh, or Mediterranean food and put it together, present it to the people in a very user-friendly way and have people build their own bowls, their own proteins, their own bases, their own sauces, kind of like Chipotle does, and essentially be the, be the uh, Chipotle of Mediterranean food. Yeah. Now, obviously, since there's been many other players in the market that have tried to deliver that on that, but this is really where it came from. So he quit his career in finance. He had a very successful career in finance, took all the savings, and uh, like most founders do, right? They put it all on everything on the line, especially in the restaurant business, opened the first location, knowing nothing about the restaurant business, <laughs> which is always awesome. That's a uh, fun gamble. Yeah. Yeah. Jeez. So, so yeah, so that's it's kind of how it started. That that was his inspiration. Well, it's time for a little commercial. Yeah. The last year provided so many challenges for restaurant owners. Now that they're finally getting a chance to open their doors again to the public, it can only be an exciting thing. However, some of those challenges still remain like hiring new staff after having to let go of them for almost an entire year. That's where Hire Lilo comes in. Custom built from the ground up by hospitality professionals, Hire Lilo is your destination for restaurant hiring. Applicants can create resumes on the site, set up meetings, use the virtual messaging system to communicate with potential hirees, and more. Restaurants also have a multitude of options to choose from, including selecting mandatory shifts for specific positions, and more. The website is easy to use and is a perfect build-out for the hospitality industry. None of the other fancy stuff are trying to compete with every other industry on the planet for new hires. As I said, it is hospitality-specific, making it your destination for hiring. Using the promo code STAYSTRONG, all one word, you can create a free job posting today and start to fill those hiring voids. HireLilo provides on-site help. They'll sit down and make sure that your restaurant is set up and properly ready to go, and that you can utilize all the features HireLilo offers. To learn more or to create an account and get job posting now, go to HireLilo.com. That's H-I-R-E-L-I-L-O.com. Once again, that's HireLilo.com. I don't know about you, but 2020 had me re-looking at how I live and the space that I live in. Spending so much time at home really had me reevaluating how certain things worked and didn't in my living space. One of the main things, as an avid home cook and an obvious supporter of restaurants, was gardening. Anybody who enjoys food at all will be able to tell you that something you've grown yourself will taste infinitely better than anything you can buy at a store. That's where Ashley Irene of Heirloom Potage comes in. Heirloom Potage designs, installs, and maintains seasonal culinary gardens for chefs and foodies in Orange County. They provide organic gardening methods and bespoke build-outs used to preserve the heirloom varietals that they'll provide for seeds. An approachable and exciting endeavor, no matter if you're a seasoned restaurateur or a stay-at-home chef. Owner Ashley Irene's experience, expertise, and enthusiasm is only matched by her professionalism. For more information on how you can set up a consultation to get your own culinary garden space set up, go to heirloompotage.com. That's heirloom, H-E-I-R-L-O-O-M, potage, P-O-T-A-G-E-R. Dot com today. Once again, that's heirloompotage.com. In, in kind of summarizing that, you said something which I'm super curious about because there's a lot of conversations going on, right? Again, we're recording this, you know, the second week of June. There's obviously a lot of things happening right now as there generally are, but it almost kind of more heightened right now in the Middle East. And you, you kind of said it's Middle Eastern food, but then you switched it to Mediterranean food. When a lot of these fast casual concepts were coming online, when everybody started to see the success that Chipotle, rightfully so, was having and wanted to enter the market, you saw a lot of Mediterranean Correct. places pop up. Correct. First. And I would say that, first of all, it's because you can sell the health aspect because everyone wants to yep. say it's healthier. But also, B, is there an aspect of, is Mediterranean an easier word to sell than Middle Eastern? Is there a better understanding? <laughs> Probably, and I and I feel even when I when I talk about it, I, I think it's important with ethnic food that is not widely known. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, Mexican food is 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 ethnic, but we know it very well, especially in California, well, yeah, right? Especially in California, so, so most yeah. people can understand what the food is, and it doesn't scare anybody to say, "Let's go for Mexican." Um, I feel with 
when you say, for example, yeah, Middle Eastern Mediterranean, I mean, many where I come from, it's on the Mediterranean. It's mm-hmm. not actually in the Middle East. Yeah, it's and so, event, so like, but but yeah. but all that food is very shared between these countries, and then they put their twists on it. You're absolutely correct when you say Mediterranean. Uh, people have one idea. I think if you said Middle Eastern, most people couldn't really explain. They would they would ask. They would kind of hesitate and go, "Wait, does that mean you serve kebabs? You serve hummus? Yeah, but that's same as Mediterranean, right? Yes. Yeah. So, so yeah, so I always say Middle Eastern Mediterranean in case people are not familiar with what Middle Eastern is and know it is Mediterranean. So, yeah. I think the other thing that you mentioned was kind of that aspect of, you know, the, the mothers and grandmothers starting to cook early in the morning, those big meals, all the food. I mean, walking in to do the podcast today, you know, we were going through the kitchen where your team was prepping yep. and the smells and just the, like, and the visuals of all that prepping for, you know, service for today. It cannot be understated how good it smelled. And that is something that I think a lot of fast casuals do is you go in and it just doesn't hit the mark. It, it gets close, but it doesn't hit it. Now I've had pita pita and I am a big fan of it. I think it's freaking delicious. I mean, I, I think that it's starting to grow for a reason. There's a reason I was excited to sit down and do this podcast yeah. because there's so many fast casuals out there. What is it from your perspective, kind of speaking business wise, about fast casuals that seem so enticing to people that are not originally kind of in hospitality that want to get into it. Okay, so so from the from the the business perspective of fast casual, um, in general, if somebody wanted to get into the restaurant business and wasn't in the restaurant business, uh, it's much harder to to open a full dining restaurant that needs a a dedicated. Uh, chef or kitchen manager, right? Um, that needs maybe a bar, managing a bar. There are so many different components to full dining. It's not that there aren't in fast casual, but I feel in fast casual, it's about doing the same seven or eight things over and over again fast because it's fast, mm-hmm. right? Uh, hopefully that we deliver, we kind of have criteria for what's considered fast in, in the fast casual. I think for most people, they look at that and it's less intimidating, right? I mean, rightfully so. I yeah, can, that's fair. I can open a... That's why food trucks are kind of an iteration of fast casual. The right? lower cost to entry. And yeah, the, yeah. yeah, lower cost to entry. Uh, in some people's eyes, maybe I need. they think they need to know less about the business um, as opposed to, you know, if I'm putting these beautiful plates together or doing steaks or whatever it is more complicated dishes basically. So mm-hmm. uh, so I think that's the attraction. And I think also uh, it's it's very seducing when you see successful brands, because like we said in, in Fast Casual, the expansion can happen very fast. Yeah. Right. If you got, if you got your, 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 your ducks in a row, your, you can replicate fairly fast, uh, which is once again, much harder to do in, in full dining. So I think to a lot of people, they come into it and they go, hey, I can open this this small spot with, you know, little money. And then the goal would be to open my second and third and fourth and so on. So, so as we stand now, um, you know, as I said, second week of June, we're recording this episode, depending on what people are hearing it. You know, we will probably when this episode goes live, the June 15th kind of deadline out here in California, all COVID-19 restrictions will have lifted. Um, they've been lifted in many other states, uh, friends that I've talked to, we're just about there. What has everything kind of during all the kind of Corona time been like for you guys business wise? And then where do things stand now? Great question. It's interesting, right? Cause I, I, I came on board with the company right, right at the beginning of Corona and really none of us knew what to expect or, yeah, but there were some fundamental changes that were taking place in the industry across the board. The beneficiaries of, of Corona was really fast casual because they really focused all the attention on fast casual because that's during Corona. That's how people were eating. Nobody was dining, right? Mm -hmm. Going and dining and most full dining restaurants really are, are not set up. The food is not set up to be carried home in a, in a container and you know yeah no your your 40 is it, yeah. yeah your 45 dollar steak au poivre is not going to look as well as and it's not going to eat as well no. you're not getting all the stuff that goes with a 45 dollar steak right 
and a lot of people were laid off and so they were mm -hmm. more mindful so really it really put the the spotlight on the sector and sorry to say but our industry was, was very archaic uh archaic in technology archaic in approach archaic in hospitality and it was one of those now we'll keep doing it the same way there was there are a few visionaries out there but the rest i would say the most were not so one of the first things that for me when i walked in as a cons thinking as a consumer uh, during corona is the chipotle system wasn't really the most friendly system to uh, to start of a pandemic where you have a lot of possibility of cross contamination and cross exposure because the chipotle system is you have multiple people that are interacting with multiple guests yeah. face to face so right away that to me didn't make any kind of sense to carry on doing a build your own concept with that much exposure. Number two, all the focus was starting to be, or it was already heading in that direction, but on, on, on delivery, right? A lot of people curbside and delivery. And yes, of course, the Chipotle system would, would, or I keep calling it a Chipotle system. They're not the only ones. I mean, Panda Express did it before Chipotle, right? True. Very successfully. But, but that kind of build your own concept, I, it didn't make sense to me anymore that, uh, if most, the majority of the people are going to be ordering a counter service type because they're ordering to go for pickup or for delivery, mm -hmm. that it would kind of make sense for us to transition into, this was a perfect opportunity uh, to transition into the, um, the counter service where you walk up for people that don't know, you walk up, you order your food. Typically some restaurants, either they, they give you a number or they call your name and then your food is ready. So yeah, so one of the main first changes during Corona was that we really need to look at this from a counter service perspective. Also, with a build your own concept, uh, if if you don't have high volume, the food, and this is another major point of contention for me, uh, and I'm, once again, I'm going to use Chipotle. Chipotle only works when Chipotle is busy. The That's Chipotle fair. system, and I spent three years with the company, does not work in slow chipotles because your rice starts to, to harden the, the, the cilantro that's in the rice starts to get dark, your meat starts to overcook. And so what a lot of operators don't understand when they go into this build your own concept, you better be super focused on how does your food hold, yeah. right? And if you have something that it doesn't hold and you don't have the volume, now you're trying to negotiate this, how much food do I waste? And how fresh do I want my food to be for the customer? And obviously, the margins in the restaurant business are very small. And most operators go, okay, I want to save on, on costs, right? I'm already getting squeezed. Now quality starts to suffer. Well, I would have to imagine also, and, and I don't mean to interrupt because I'm, no. I'm super curious where this is going further, but I would have to imagine that more so than anybody else, aside from maybe dive bars for happy hour, the fast casual sector got nailed the hardest because you lost your predictability. Because everybody started working from Correct. home, now you don't have your lunch rush. Now you don't 100%. have those standard kind of office pickups and things like that. How did you adapt to changing where and when your customers were coming? Excellent. Obviously, in the restaurant business, we work on, I mean, most businesses, you work on trends. Yeah. Right. And I could tell you that over the year, uh, over the years, there are trends that hold true in, in our industry. You know on tax day or before taxes, you expect it's got the business going to slow down during Christmas. You expect this during. So, so you do have trends and a lot of them vary geographically. So you kind of learn your, it is the most challenging, uh, thing to, to, to a being Corona and have no idea where the trends are going. And you're right. Any restaurant that was mainly focused on lunch business, Probably I'd say most restaurants go in with that idea. How much lunch business can I grab? Because that's that's the most business you can do in the shortest amount of time. Yeah. Unless you're in a touristy area, like you know, by Disneyland or something, that's a whole different ballgame. Corona then all of a sudden takes that away, strips that away. But you're like, okay, so certain people that weren't going to be are no longer coming to the office are now staying at home. So so now I traded that my population that my dinner business from the people that were at work and came back home 
that live around the restaurant and you will get these people. Now those people are home during the day, right? So you're like, okay, but are they going to come in? Are they going to pick up? So it was very, very challenging. And um, my belief from the very beginning with such a tough predicament for both the operator and the consumer, my background and my heart, it's always hospitality is I didn't want the consumer to suffer because of what's going on with, with the pandemic. And so, you know, we moved very slow as far as, you know, most restaurants cut down their hours, cut down their, their service. You got a lot worse service. So, which to me didn't make sense. You're, we're during a pandemic. And as an operator, that, that guest is so valuable that, because it, that guest is one of 10 that decided to actually venture out. Mm -hmm. Remember, this is the beginning of it. People weren't even leaving their homes. Yeah. And that guest that came to me that, that, that took that, that, that jump and, and decided, to come, decided to come out, um, they're, they're getting punished by the retailer or the restaurant because they're getting a subpar service or limited service or things were taking much longer because, oh, sorry, you know, we had to cut down our staff mm -hmm. because, and I get that, but for us, we wanted to, to keep the status quo the same as far as when you come in, you are, for you, it doesn't feel like, like it's Corona or yeah. there's a pandemic. You're going to get the same level of service, same quality of food, um, same size menu, right? A lot of places reduce their menu. Uh, we wanted to keep Really, I, I, I fully felt as a consumer because I'm also you and I are consumers, right? And my experience was terrible going out. Every time I would go out, I'd have to, you know, I go to a nice, um, to a nice restaurant. And I remember I went to this place in Marina del Rey where they have a huge patio over the water. And it's a great place to go have cocktails. And, and I went to it and... I had to walk to the bar and order my drinks because now they're saying, oh, we're cutting down on staff. So now this is a, you know, supposed to be an experience, but now I have to go inside and order the drinks and the food. And then my, you know, $20 glass of wine comes in a plastic cup. And that didn't make any sense to me. Yeah, it did. the romantic aspect is now kind of gone when you're dealing with yeah, those things. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't want to spend $20 on a, on a glass of wine if I'm going and serving myself. And, and I'm not being elitist here, but I'm saying that why was I suffering as a, as a consumer? It, it was up to the business to figure out. If you're going to open, open, you're not doing me a favor. I'm actually the consumers doing me a favor that they're coming to my establishment. Really, because they have the choice to sit home, order Domino's. Right. And, and so, so, so for us in the beginning, we didn't want to cut any of the services. The only thing really that, that we right away decided that we wanted to switch was switch from a, a build your own to a the counter, counter service. Yeah. yeah. So we've survived knock on wood, the lights at the end of the tunnel, as I said, probably when, you know, people are hearing this episode, restrictions will have lifted. Where does P2P to go from here? Because I know the, the goal is to expand Correct. and go national and things like that. What lessons, or I should say, basically from that experience that you had during the, you know, shutdown all, you know, what seemed like 30 phases here in California, what have you guys learned from that, from the business perspective? And what is it, has it changed P2P to as you continue to grow? Yeah. Excellent question. So once again, because we are fast casual, we were more positioned to deal with, right? So, so, so there, there's, there's less change in infrastructure because you were kind of already set up as a model for people to quickly pick up their food and go. So yeah. kind of met that goal for the pandemic. We were already going in that direction, but it, it made it even clearer for us that, and I think most people, and, and, and I'll, I'll tell you this from speaking to real estate brokers as we're expanding and, and, and looking at locations, the the sweet spot in fast casual used to be restaurants around twenty five hundred square feet, 
to 3,000 square feet. That, that was kind of the, the sweet spot for a lot of fast casual places. Yeah, I mean, I, I think anybody listening, again, we, we keep mentioning the Chipotle model, the P2P model, whatever it is, everybody can kind of imagine in their mind's eye exactly the space. You know, yeah, regardless correct. of the marketing and the changes and the aesthetics, everybody knows the setup. So yeah, that square footage correct. makes perfect sense. Correct, but that changed now. So now the hardest, uh, everybody realized, wait a second, why do we have these massive dining rooms? Number one, geographically, we're in Southern California, right? Most of our year, we can get away with sitting outside. And if on the cold days, you have heaters and umbrellas, you're probably pretty safe, mm -hmm. right? Most of us prefer to sit outside when the weather is nice and eat. That's why we're here. And so, um, so now the whole focus with almost most is about 1,200 to 1,500 square feet uh, location sizes. But that was already our inclination from before when we, when we kind of switch from a, a, a construct your own uh, system to a counter service, uh, some of our kitchen setup didn't make sense anymore and the size didn't make sense anymore. So coming out of Corona, for sure, the focus is on, on more efficient space, right? You don't need these large footprints in fast casual with huge dining rooms. You just got to make sure you have awesome patios. Mm -hmm. So I think this is one of the main differences too, is rather than a, a patio and fast casual was always for most of the time was an afterthought. Like here's I'm building this beautiful restaurant and then I'm going to throw some tables outside and put a, some kind of a rail around it. And yeah. that's my patio, right? I think for us speaking personally, patios becomes very important for us, right? It needs to be just as inviting. It needs to be the, what is the ambient temperature? What, um, what, the feeling, how does it flow from inside of the restaurant to the outside versus just to throw some tables outside with some umbrellas. So I think this is, this is one of these big shifts that we're looking at uh, and is very important for every location that we go. The number one question is not how many tables can we put inside, is what's our outside setup like, Yeah. right? Um, the, um, the number two thing is accommodating flow. So when you think about flow when you walk in place sometimes you walk into places you go this doesn't make sense the way i'm being cued through a line or or this the specific food doesn't coincide with the way they're making me order it or or my 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 walk through the the restaurant um i think with corona all our restaurants now are the the thought is flow okay uh we know that third-party delivery is a big part of it you're gonna get a bunch of drivers in picking up food then you have people that ordered online using our, you know, loyalty program or app and, yep. and they're coming to pick up food. Then you have the people that are coming into the restaurant and they're ordering food to go. So they're not going and grabbing a table. They're going to congregate somewhere. And then you have the people that are coming to dine in. So you have four different groups that have four different needs and you don't want one to adversely impact the other group because it's not fair right so the driver what does the driver want we want to accommodate the driver they're our business they're part of our lifeline a lot of places the the drivers will walk in to pick up it's not clear um maybe the the food the way it's laid out they can grab the wrong food and that creates a problem with the customer and for the driver and for the restaurant uh the the guests that order their food online to pick up because they don't have much time for lunch, they want to be in and out. They don't want to walk in and find themselves in a sea of people, not be able to figure out, well, where's my food? How do I look for it? We want to, we want to streamline it, right? Yeah. The person that's ordering um, to go, to, to, to take it away, well, during Corona, when they're waiting, where are they going to wait? So um, now you're still trying to maintain having a nice experience without making people feel like they're waiting in line to board their Southwest flight. Yeah, and, and to eliminate the confusion because yeah. I think a lot of times we, we, we go eat somewhere and yeah, we figure it out, but sometimes the, the system is very confusing and, 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 and I worked with a very busy um, you know, concept that, great concept, super popular, but the whole ordering to picking up experience sucked. Yeah. And it created a lot of issues. It created mistakes. Uh, so the, the customer experience was impacted. And so I think now coming out of Corona, I think one thing we've all learned, or at least we are doing is 
how do we seamlessly incorporate the third party delivery and pickup into the restaurant, into the flow of the restaurant, but still have that be separate from the other guest experience. So we kind of compartmentalize the experiences and make sure that they, they have their own flow separately. That is the most efficient for both the guest, the drivers, and for us. Yeah. So I, I always try to make these episodes feel a little bit evergreen. Obviously, you know, coronavirus is an incredibly topical thing because it's a massive moment in history. So hard to make that evergreen. But the knowledge I always want to be there, but there are still some topics that I always want to bring up. And I would be completely remiss if I didn't bring up the biggest hot button issue that everybody's dealing with right now, and that's rehiring staff. Yep. How has that experience been for P2P? And what are your kind of personal thoughts on what is giving, you know, for better or for worse, an issue to it? Because I know it's something that everybody's dealing with. Correct. Everybody's short staffed. There's not a day that goes by where I don't get a message asking, hey, do you know a bartender? Hey, do you know a sous chef? Correct. What's that been like for you guys? Interesting. So it's <laughs> a good summation. Yeah. yeah that's, but, but, but I'll start with this. And this is, this is a core belief I have. And, and this stems from my own experience as coming up as a staff member, you know, in a, in a restaurant group is true. It's, you know, Corona changed and, and some of it, by the way, was was legitimately not somebody didn't want to work, but we didn't know about what the disease entailed, and 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 some people were were frightened, and I don't blame them. Whether you're they were seventeen years old or twenty five years old, and mm-hmm. some of them had old parents or grandparents at home. Nobody knew whether they were coming or going. So yeah, so I got the fact that you know I was super sympathetic to whatever my personal views were for my what what fit my life. That for somebody else, they can, their, their concerns were legitimate, mm-hmm. right? And so, however, I felt the best way to circumvent this issue is create an environment where people don't want to leave you. And I know this is, especially in fast casual, I think a lot of operators take it for granted. But for me, is I wanted somebody to be here it's just as important the experience of my first we put so much focus in in the restaurant business uh on you know and the food and the execution and the marketing and and the people we neglect the most are our frontline people that are actually selling and representing the business and it blows me away right it blows me away so i start backwards those are my most important people. And every decision that's made takes them into consideration because I, I was one. I, I know what it feels like to, to feel that your hands are tied or be in an environment where you're not happy, but the, the boss is telling you, make sure you smile and say hi to everybody yeah. and be welcoming. And you're miserable. And so th- th- those are not congruent. You're, th- doesn't, it's not going to yield the result that you want. So... So go into the focus of, of the staff. Be number one. You know, we focus on being as accommodating and understanding during Corona to our staff. We've had to shut down a couple of times because somebody called out and said, hey, I'm not feeling good. And in the beginning, we didn't know what that means. And immediately we would send, we incurred the expenses uh, two or three times to send all the staff to get, to shut down the restaurant, send the staff to get tested. And back then there was no rapid testing. So we waited like a week for everybody to get the results and then bring people back. So number one, we took everybody's feeling as much as we could, everybody's feelings and concerns into consideration. That number one shows that the employer cares, that you're not just dispensable. Okay. Um, Number two, proper pay. We always hear a pita pita paid more than that we looked at best in class. I always, I always use that and, and go, what's best in class doing? Because they're successful for a reason. And it's not just about the food or the menu that they have. It's also about the way they treat their staff. Mm-hmm. Because we all know, forget the cost for a second, but any day of the week, I would rather have an engaged veteran team member uh, working than have a bunch of new people that I'm training that are still trying to practice and and perhaps impact the customer's experience because they're new, right? Yeah. There's there's that learning curve. And so 
so being competitive in the pay and even better than competitive. And that was the number one focus for me is I want to make sure I have that environment, check in with everybody, make sure that, that we're listening to their needs. There was a lot of that going on after that, obviously. So, so, so you reduce your turnover rate, right? And then now you're, it's less of a problem for you, the hiring, you know, it wasn't really a big issue for us, believe it or not. Um, one of, for me, one of the signs of that you have a great culture. And I, I know in our industry, we throw a culture around and, but true culture, genuine culture where people are, are bound to their work, which is very hard. And we're talking about most of our, you know, employees are probably high school to early. So how do you get, you know, they don't have a family, they don't have to pay rent. And mm-hmm. how do you get them engaged and actually have them love where they're at? Um, but one of the, one of the evidence that you're hitting the nail on the head is when they bring their friends to come and work here. Not only that, but they're the biggest critics of somebody who's not good. So somebody who's good, who's engaged, who loves their job, A, they will tell their friends about it, what a great place they're working at. But B, when they recommend somebody, they only want other great people. Because my first question when one of the one of my team members says, "Hey, I have a friend that wants to come and work with us," I go, "Would you want to work next to them? Would you hire them?" And they go, "100 percent." They don't recommend people that yeah they could be their friends, but if they don't think they can hack it in this environment, they will not bring it because they understand it will make their life much harder. So to be honest with you, a lot of we got a lot of cross referrals from our staff from happy staff. And that, that carried us. Now is probably the hardest time uh, as, an opera, as we're growing, as we're expanding. Uh, because so many, so we were one of the few also, you know, a lot of places closed down during, during COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had less competition for staffing, right? Now that everybody's popping up opening, yes, of course, it's, it's, it's a lot more confusing for somebody who's in the market for a job. So for every one applicant, that might be 10 places that want them. And it's hard. And how, how do you decipher where you want to work for an entry-level job when you're, you know, 18 years old? Yeah. You're not going to research the background of the company, the culture, go in and eat there and see how the, is the staff happy? Is it, are they genuinely happy? What's the attitude like? You know, most people won't do that for an entry-level position. Yeah. So actually now it's really hard. And we're all kind of using the traditional, you know, methods of, of uh, probably online advertising our jobs and trying to get exposure. But, um, but ultimately, to sum it up, the, the secret is create an environment that feels so good to your staff that they want to bring, they take pride in it and they want to bring somebody that they care about and go, hey, you need to work here because this is great. Well, that's great to hear that you guys have created that culture. Um, and it's a, it's a, obviously a culture that's continuing to grow and I think rightfully so. So, um, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. You are obviously very busy with a lot of things going on and if nothing else, more people to interview for jobs, but I'm so grateful for the time and I'm so glad that you guys are growing the way that you are. So if people wanted to reach out to learn more about Pita Pita, to just learn about kind of the business, find you guys on social media, websites, if they wanted to apply for a job, where could folks go and do that? Perfect. Uh, Pita.com. So that's the best way and that, that will channel you in whichever direction you want to go. Um, you can learn about the food. But at the end of the day, um, I think the best way to experience Pita Pita is to come to a Pita Pita. Um, we just, I know we're wrapping it up. Um, you know, we just opened our, there was the original three restaurants mm-hmm. of Pita Pita. And, uh, and then over the last year, obviously, as, as we kind of, refined the concept and uh, really figured out some 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 very crucial information about who we want it to be who our audience is what our audience expects right uh so our latest location newport beach is is really the the evolution of pita pita and and looks and feels quite a bit different than our original three not not in a bad way but it's just there's a distinction between the two the food is still equally good in any of the restaurants, but um, but yeah, I think 
uh, visiting that location and then uh, seeing our upcoming, you know, evolution of the brand with our new look, with our new feel, with our new flow. Um, I think that's that'd be great for people to to get that firsthand as opposed to just you know on a website and you look at yeah. pictures of food. Almost everybody has great pictures of food nowadays, and uh, you really don't know what it is until you go out there and go through the whole experience, right? So, well, that's great. Uh, for those who are listening who are local, where in Newport Beach are we talking? So it's off of MacArthur. It's two blocks down from the airport, going towards the water. Got it. Um, and uh, right next to a uh, Jamba Juice and La Salsa. There's that center there. Um, and then, uh, but yeah, but our plan. Um, is to finish with four more restaurants this year. And hopefully if the demand is there and, and, and people appreciate what it is that we're trying to do, then uh, we're looking to double our size next year. So open eight more. That's great. Yeah. Well, congratulations. I'm glad, A, that you guys, A, survived 2020. Like so many who did not, but so many that did. And, and congrats on all the, the continued growth. Thank you. That, Thank you so awesome. much. Appreciate your time. Appreciate it. Thank you, thank you, thank you to Rami for taking the time. Um, so fascinated. I'm sorry we couldn't get our other guest, obviously, on there as well, but that was a ton of information. I really hope you enjoyed it. Thank you to the sponsors for this show. Thank you to everybody who supports over on patreon.com slash the best seats, just like you can. Maybe you're listening to this episode right there. I don't know, but wherever you're listening to it, thank you for the time. Don't forget, you can go to thebestseats.com for more shows and content and all kinds of fun stuff just like this. Be sure to follow them on Instagram. You can follow me on Instagram at the best seats. That is C-E-A-T-S. If you didn't know it already, well, now you do. And don't forget to spread the word. Leave a rating and or review, as I said before, wherever you're listening to it. And I'll see you soon. Take care. The Best Seats Podcast is an original production of The Best Seats. It is written, edited, produced, and owned by myself, Crawford McCarthy, founder and owner of The Best Seats. It is recorded in Aliso Viejo, California. It is subsidized through generous donations through patreon.com slash the best seats. The following are names that have subscribed at the highest tier, aka norm status, and thus allow me to produce the show each and every episode. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Here are the supporters. Alexander Cook, Cheryl McCarthy, George Pavlov, Serena Warino, Eric Lutz, Pizza Guy 92, Loco Lipo, Tim Falk. Thank you for your support.